Last week, dear congregation, we left Paul in Athens. You'll remember that Athens was the great center of learning in the ancient world, the Harvard of the old world. And Paul had preached there that famous speech on the Areopagus, and he had preached Christ to them. And he had done it in, in, the, uh, in a way that was calculated to be compelling to them, assuming their worldview and their background. But you'll remember that Paul eventually had come to that place where he preached the resurrection. And my friends, no matter how appealing, no matter how soft we try to make the gospel, it is inherently an offensive message, isn't it? And the Greeks scoffed at the idea of a resurrection. And Paul finally left Athens. Now, if you look on the map that I gave you on the outline, you can see, well, you don't see the city of Athens, but the city of Athens would be on the mainland of Greece. On the map there, you see the, that, those words Aegean Sea. Well, if you went about an inch to the left, right, or to the west there, you'd have the city of Athens. And then there's that little bridge of land that connects the mainland of Greece with what's called the Peloponnesus, which is the peninsula, because it is a peninsula. It's actually connected. And Corinth was a city built right on the narrowest part of that land bridge between the mainland of Greece, where Athens was, and the Peloponnesus. So Corinth was a remarkable city because of its geography. Because of its geography, it was able to have a harbor on both sides, the west side of that land bridge and the east side. In fact, it was so uh, attractive to merchant sailors back in those days because to go around the south of Greece, right, so if you continue down the Aegean Sea, past all those islands, and go around the south and up the other side, up the western side of Greece, that was a very perilous journey. It was a, it was a, a very stormy sea. I'm not real sure why, but at any rate, it's very clear from the historical record that that was a very treacherous trip to make. That's not something you wanted to do. So it was very appealing to the merchant men of those days to go to Corinth. And they even built a, 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 a rail line, as it were, from one end to the other. So that boats, it was, it was too much to build a, a, an actual canal. But they actually succeeded in building a kind of a rail line where the boats would be uh, hitched up on this trailer and literally carted across that narrow land bridge and brought to the other side, to the western side, so that they didn't have to make that perilous trip around the south of the Peloponnesus. Well, my friends, that made Corinth a very popular city, a very cosmopolitan city. And by that I mean that there were so many different kinds of people there, so many different cultures of people there, and a great deal of wealth there. Lots and lots of trade was happening. You might say it was like the, 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 the main stock exchange of the ancient world. It was a tremendously prosperous city with all kinds of different people present in it. Now, if I said that Athens was Harvard, then I could say that uh, Corinth was like Las Vegas, all right? Because it was a city that was very well known in the ancient world for being very immoral. The, 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 in, in those days, the expression to Corinthianize meant to commit adultery. Those were synonyms. So Las, or, uh, Corinth was a deeply immoral city, and it was a place where the gospel came. And that's what we have the privilege then of reading in this chapter. 
Because here comes Paul now to the city of Corinth. And already he finds Jews there. He found a Jew named Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who had originally lived in Rome. But Emperor Claudius, Emperor Claudius was the emperor just before Emperor Nero. And uh, you might uh, remember reading in history that it was Emperor Claudius that he banned all the Jews from Rome. So why did Aquila and Priscilla have to leave? Well, because back then, before the time of Nero, Christians and Jews were seen as one religion. They were lumped all together. So when the Jews had to leave, all the Christians had to go as well. Or you had to deny the faith. But at any rate, Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome. The Christians had to leave as well. Aquila and Priscilla are Christians. And Paul finds uh, that he can stay with them because they all together are tent makers. Now, that brings me to my first point here then, which is Paul and payment. Paul, my friends, had resolved when he came to Corinth to refuse any pay, any remuneration from the Corinthian church. And that's why we find Paul taking up his, his, uh, his stay with the, uh, with the church at, uh, uh, sorry, with Aquila and Priscilla. And with Aquila and Priscilla, he begins to make his own living. And you can see how he does that because during the week, he is busy making tents. You read that in verse 3. But on the weekend, on the Sabbath, in verse 4, he goes to the synagogue, and there he reasons with Jews and Greeks that Jesus is the Christ. So he becomes what today we would know as a bivocational pastor. He works during the week, and he does his evangelistic work on the Sabbath, so the Jewish Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath. And this is what Paul does. Now, why did Paul not want to take any money, any pay from the Corinthian church? Well, it's quite an interesting story, actually. And the interesting thing is that now we can actually turn to the uh, book of Corinth. We can read Paul's letter to Corinth, and we can see what Paul says there. And in chapter 9, and I put that, I put that verse on the outline there, in chapter 9 and verse 12, Paul writes, If others share the right over you, do we not more? In other words, he's talking about the right to be paid. If others share the right to be paid over you, do we not more? So Paul is insisting that he has the right to be paid, but he gives this reason. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to come to the gospel of Christ. My friends, Paul wants no obstacle to stand between him and the gospel. And when he preaches to the Corinthian people, he doesn't want to hear anything about, Paul, you're just here for the money. Now, in the ancient world, there were people, there were many of these traveling teachers, sophists, they were often called, okay, from the Greek word for wisdom, Sophia, I think you're familiar with that word. And the sophists were traveling teachers, traveling philosophers, who went around, and they would teach, and of course they expected to be paid, and they had a right to be paid, Paul's not denying that. But many of these men were kind of, yeah, in our day we would call them kind of snake oil salesmen, right? They, they were, they were, they, they spun a good line, okay? And, and they would teach you things that, 
weren't all that edifying, but maybe were kind of cute, were kind of quaint, uh, rather technical. And, and so some of these men did not have a very good reputation. And of course, you can imagine that there were many of these kinds of traveling teachers, philosophers in Corinth, right? Corinth was a magnet for that kind of thing. And so when Paul comes to this city, he does not want to accept any pay. He has a right to it, but he does not want to do it. And actually, in, the, uh, in his first letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, is basically, the whole chapter is basically about Paul uh, not accepting pay. He even says, if we sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? He even quotes from the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now that's an interesting verse, isn't it? Remember in the Old Testament when they were threshing with the oxen? uh, They would put muzzles over the ox so it wouldn't eat the grain that they were threshing. Well, God forbid that in the Old Testament. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox. Let that ox have some grain. It's working. It has a right to eat just like you do. And Paul uses that to show that uh, he, who was the ox in this case, right, he was doing work, also had the right to receive from the Corinthians pay for what he was doing. But at any rate, Paul does not want to accept any pay from the Corinthians so that the, the, this payment would never hinder the gospel of Christ. No Corinthian person could say, Paul, you're just here seeking personal gain, just like all the rest of these teachers who are here. Here you come, you teach us something, and you want to be paid for it. In, in, the, in Paul's second letter to Corinth, in chapter 7 and verse 2, Paul will say, he says, oh, I put that verse there as well, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. You see, that's kind of Paul's boast. Paul's actually proud of that, right? No matter what you might think of my teaching, Paul says, no one here can accuse me of defrauding anybody or cheating anybody out of your wages. I didn't accept any money. I made money with my own hands. So Paul was a tent maker, and Paul receives that payment. However, that changed. Paul's situation changed. So if you go back to Acts 18, you can see that Paul finally meets up again with Silas and Timothy. From the previous chapter, or the previous sermon, you'll remember that when Paul was coming through Thessalonica, he had preached, but the Jews had gotten so angry that there was a riot. Paul had to flee Thessalonica, and he came to Berea. Remember the city that was just a tick south of that? He came to Berea, but the believers from Thessalonica, I'm sorry, the Jewish people from Thessalonica followed him to Berea, and they continued the persecution, and Paul finally realized that it was not safe for him any longer here, and he got on a boat and he went to Athens. So now Paul is uh, in, uh, he has left Silas and Timothy in Berea. But finally, Timothy and Silas catch up to Paul. You can read that in verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Now why? Why was that, uh, that Paul was able to do that? Well, that's bring me then to my, to my second point here. Paul reunited. Paul reunited. And if you look at that middle verse there, Philippians 4 and verse 15, again, this is so interesting now because we have, 
we, we can put the letters of Paul next to the Acts of the Apostles. And we can make connections between what Paul is saying in his letters to what we read from Luke's account in the book of Acts. And in Philippians 4, Paul writes, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, okay, so that's when he left Berea and went to Athens, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. This leads us to believe that when Silas and Timothy met up with Paul in Corinth, they had with them a sizable chunk of money that the Philippian church had given to Paul for his maintenance. In fact, it was such a sizable chunk of money that Paul was now able to stop tent making and to give himself full time to the work of teaching and preaching the gospel. Now we have another hint, because in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 9, Paul writes, And when I was present with you, that is in Corinth, and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. Right? Paul refused to accept money from the Corinthian church. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Again, the hint there, the, the, the indication is that when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia and met Paul in Corinth, they had brought with them this gift so that now Paul was able to lay aside tent making. He moved out of Aquila and Priscilla's house and he moved in with, what's this man's name here in verse 7? Titius Justus. A man who happens to live right next to the synagogue, we're told. And now Paul is able to give himself full time to the work of the gospel. Now there's one other connection that I want to make with you when we think about Paul being reunited. And that is in those verses from Thessalonians. Now it's very interesting, my friends, because Luke is writing a highly abbreviated account, right? He's giving you the, he's giving you the highlights. Many of the details he's leaving out. But we find some of these details provided for us in Paul's letters. So in 1 Thessalonians 3, we read this. That's the first verse there under Paul reunited. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Now that is very interesting to us, because we read in the book of Acts that when Paul got to Athens, he was alone, that he had left Silas and Timothy in Berea, and that he had flown for his life, got on a ship, and ended up in Athens. And yet here, from Thessalonians, we discover that at some point during that time, uh, Timothy had come down from Berea to Athens and was staying with Paul. But at that time, Paul had received word that the situation in the Thessalonian church was very severe. We are not told what it was, but we are told in these verses, right, uh, that no one should be disturbed by these afflictions. In some way, the church in Thessalonica was suffering. It seems very likely that it was the same persecution that chased Paul out of the city was now being directed against the Christians there. We don't know, but again, that, makes every, that certainly makes good sense. But at any rate, Timothy had finally gone down to Paul in Athens, 
Paul was alone at Athens. He embraced his brother Timothy. He was so happy to have him. Paul was a, Paul was a man given to loneliness. And yet Paul realizes that the Thessalonians need him more than he does. And so he commissions Timothy to go back north, go back up to Thessalonica, and do what you can to encourage the believers there. And of course, that leaves Paul then lonely again in Athens. Timothy had visited him, but Paul immediately had to turn around and send him back to Thessalonica. And so Paul is lonely in Athens. And when he comes to Corinth, reunited, but it was a, a in Timothy's case, it was short. And finally, in Corinth, Paul receives them again. Timothy came back down from Thessalonica. Silas came with him, and they met Paul in Corinth. And probably Timothy then brought with him that gift from the Philippian church so that Paul could devote himself full-time to the work of the gospel. I come then to my third point, which is Paul's success. Because Paul has startling success in the city of Corinth. Verse 8, we are told that the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, becomes a Christian. I hope you didn't read over that, my friends, when we read that. What a, what a, that, is, that is striking, isn't it? That is staggering to believe that not just a Jew became a Christian, but that the leader of the synagogue, this is a man who would have been a scholarly man, well-studied. He would have been the man responsible for leading the worship in the synagogue. And he becomes a Christian. Oh, wouldn't you love to have been a, 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 a fly on the wall, as it were, for that conversation between Paul and Crispus? I don't know how that conversation went. But I recently heard a conversation that I think was probably very similar. On YouTube, there is a discussion between William Lane Craig who is a very gifted apologist for the Christian faith, and Ben Shapiro. I think Ben Shapiro's name is probably familiar to you. He's a Jew who is more in the cultural, political realm, but still a very learned uh, young man. And he and William Lane Craig had a conversation. And you know, my friends, I, I was just on the way home. I didn't really intend to listen to it, but there it was. I hit it. And as I was listening to that, I thought, you know, this conversation is Paul talking to Crispus, Paul talking to any of the Jews. Because what happened in this conversation? William Lane Craig said, well, Jesus is the Messiah. Why do you think so, says Ben? Because he rose from the dead. Well, said Ben, Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah, really, that the Old Testament predicted and that the New Testament Jews were expecting. Exactly. That's exactly it, isn't it? That's exactly the argument that the Sanhedrin was making at the time. We are not looking for a Messiah who died on a cross. That's not the Messiah. Our Messiah is a man of power who comes and delivers us from the political yoke of the Romans. And William Lane Craig had to say, hold up. The grave was empty on Easter morning. Explain that. The grave was empty on Easter morning. Now, again, I can't get into the whole conversation. But my friends, I have to believe that in, in broad strokes, that conversation that Paul had and that God blessed to the conversion of Crispus was very similar to the conversations we see happening today between Christians and Jews. Not a lot has changed in that department. Well, my friends, the, the Jews, again, are enraged. They bring Paul before Gallio. 
Gallio quickly realizes that, just a, that this, uh, con- this argument, this quarrel, is simply an intramural uh, dispute between the Jews about their law, and he dismisses it. He dismisses it. And then we have this, this difficult verse to understand in verse 17, where it says, And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. So first of all, is Sosthenes the man who took over after Crispus converted to Christianity? That's hard saying. It could be that Sosthenes and Crispus served together, right? We know that there were more than one leader of the synagogue. It's possibly they served contemporaneously. It's very possible that Sosthenes took over after Crispus left. Whatever. But why was Sosthenes beaten? So Sosthenes is the, is the leader of the synagogue, and he's beaten. And furthermore, who is the they in verse 17? And they all took hold of Sosthenes. These are difficult questions. On the one hand, it's possible that the they there is the Jews. It's possible that the Jews uh, came, uh, brought this case against Paul. Sosthenes was the man, kind of their lead prosecutor, you might say. And since he failed to secure a conviction... The Jews, in their rage, beat up their own man. Not very nice, but that may very well have been the case. It seems a lot harder to explain that the they would have been like the Romans or the Greeks. Why would the, why would the Gentile people have grabbed Sosthenes and beat him up? Now, there's no love between the Jewish people and the, and the Gentile people. No question about that. There's plenty of motive there for them to beat him up, but why beat up Sosthenes? Why wouldn't they have beat up all the, all the other Jews there? There's another thing about Sosthenes. And remember, the the point here is Paul's success in Corinth. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 1, we see quite uh, an amazing thing there. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 1. And this is Paul's greeting. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, I point out to you, my friends, that it does not say Paul to the Corinthians, right? It says Paul, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. That means Sosthenes, my my friends, is a co-author of the letter of Paul to Corinth. It's not just that that Sosthenes, because, you know, Paul often used a secretary, right? That Sosthenes was just the secretary who wrote words. No, Sosthenes actually was inspired by God and is a co-author of the Paul's letter to Corinth. That means that whoever this Sosthenes was, was not just a believer, but that he had risen to some rank and influence in the Christian church. Now again, it's not certain that this Sosthenes is the same Sosthenes that we have in Acts 18, but it certainly is very likely. There's certainly nothing in the text of Scripture that would forbid that from being the case. Which means, my friends, and again, if you try to piece this together, Crispus is the leader of the synagogue. He converts to Christianity. Possibly, Sosthenes takes his place and is then also converted to Christianity. Now, it's amazing enough that the first man was converted. But amazing grace, how sweet the sound, my friends, that now the very guy who either was serving with Crispus or was after Crispus also becomes a Christian and converts to Christianity and possibly arises to some influence in the church such that he's a co-author with Paul of Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. So Paul has amazing 
a success in the church at Corinth. Now, in my first point of application, I'll I'll return to the fact that we are explicitly told uh, that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household and that they were then baptized. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. I'll return to that. I want to say a few uh, uh, points here about Paul's vow. We read in verse 18 that Paul was in Cenchrea. By the way, Cenchrea would have been the eastern part, a city on the eastern side of Corinth. Remember, Corinth is on that little land bridge. Cenchrea was the port, little town on the eastern side. And in Cenchrea, he had his hair cut or his hair shaved, for he was keeping a vow. Now, this has caused a a lot of questioning about what is Paul doing there? Uh, In the Old Testament, the times when you shaved your heads were very rare. The one, the one obvious time was if you were declared uh, uh, that you had leprosy. And when the priest, and if you were cured of it, if you came clean, then you had to shave all your hair. Again, probably for obvious reasons, shaved all your hair, and then you were slowly on uh, recovered. The only other time that a person would have shaved their heads in the Old Testament uh, law is the Nazarites. That if the Nazarites, remember, they were not allowed to touch a dead body. However, if somebody died right next to them, like they, they couldn't avoid it, like you know, they literally collapsed right, right next to them, say they, they grabbed him or something, and oh, they now touched a dead body, they had to shave their head completely. So the question becomes then, why is Paul shaving his head, and why did he make this vow? Well, it's very difficult to know, again, the, the details of this, but it seems, my friends, that Paul probably saw himself as something of a Nazarite. That Paul saw himself as a person devoted completely to God. And so he took on himself a Nazarite vow. And, and he, he fulfilled all the requirements of what it meant to be a Nazarite. He didn't marry. And uh, presumably then I guess he wouldn't have drunk strong drink. Uh, although again, I, that can't be proven from the New Testament. Uh, and he would have shaved his head if he had come into contact with something that was unclean. So was it in keeping of a Nazarite vow that Paul did that? That's not clear. But at any rate, I didn't want to just skip over that, so I bring that to your attention. Let's make haste then, my friends, into these points of applications. The first one that I want to make is these covenantal assumptions that Crispus and his whole family are believed, and they believe the gospel, and then presumably also would be baptized. Now, I know I've preached on this a number of times here, my friends, because I think it's important that we understand why we as Reformed churches believe in family baptism, right? We often say we believe in infant baptism, but you know that it's a little more accurate to say that we believe in family baptism, and that when the head of a household believes the gospel, all his children are brought into the covenant with him, and therefore they receive the sign of that covenant, which is baptism. And you'll know that that is a practice that carryovers from the Old Testament. That was not a practice peculiar to the Mosaic Law. Remember, it began with Abraham. But in the New Testament, we in the Reformed churches hold that that practice continues. And therefore, when a family, uh, when when the head of the household believes the gospel and he has children, all his children are baptized along with him. And that's why when any family in the congregation has a new baby, that baby then is brought to the baptismal font as well to receive the sign of baptism. Now, what do we find in this verse that can assist us in understanding this? 
It's very subtle, my friends. And again, I'm not saying this is the strongest proof for infant baptism or family baptism, as we call it. But I also find that this verse is very consistent with our understanding of family baptism. So I come to verse 8 and read with me there where it says, And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed. And the verb believe there is very clearly in the Greek language a singular verb. Crispus believed the gospel. He believed in the Lord. And then notice it says, with all his household. So in a sense, Crispus believed, but his whole household believed as well. But notice, my friends, that it does not say, and Crispus, the leader, and all his family believed in the Lord. And you say, Pastor, is that really such an important point? Well, again, I, I, I agree. This is a very subtle point, and this is not the strongest proof we would bring. But still, my friends, notice that it's Crispus who believes the gospel, and then the text says, with all his family. In other words, his family was included in Crispus' faith. Now, what would that have looked like in the family? We're not told what, what Crispus' family looked like. But let me just kind of, let's just speculate what that would have looked like if Crispus had had a family. So it would have included his wife. It would have included his children. Probably at Crispus' age, he would have had married children. Any servants that he would have had in his household. Crispus, being a Jew, probably didn't have slaves. But he may have had some hired servants of some kind. Perhaps Crispus or his wife's parents lived with them. Very common in those days. So when Crispus believed the gospel... And Paul now comes to Crispus, and we know that Paul baptized the whole family of Crispus. Crispus would have professed his faith and would have requested baptism, and Paul would have done that. Crispus' wife would have professed faith. Basically what I'm saying, my friends, is that all the members of Crispus' family would have professed faith in whatever way they were capable of doing. Let us suppose for not one now that one of Crispus' children also had a child, just a five-year-old or a three-year-old child, That child, too, would have professed his or her faith in whatever way they were capable. But now suppose that one of Crispus' children has an infant child. All right, children, you can think about this. Perhaps they were just married and they had an infant child. And being Jew, well, we can suppose that that baby was named Miriam. Is that good? Shall we work with that? Baby Miriam, just a week old. Now, what would happen to baby Miriam supposing that Crispus had such an infant child. And, of course, this is all the debate between us and our Baptist brethren, right? The text says that Crispus believed in the Lord with all his household. In other words, the whole family was lumped in together with the faith of Crispus. And we know, my friends, what the practice would have been in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament that that child would have received, not baptism then, but circumcision. That's clear. In the two millennia, roughly, of the Old Testament time, that child would have been brought into the the covenant of uh, people of God by means of that sign. So now in the New Testament, when the sign very clearly is now baptism and circumcision is no longer done away with, the question then becomes, would that sign of baptism been applied to baby Miriam, that infant grandchild of Crispus? And, of course, this is all the debate, and the debate will continue on till the end of time, more than likely. Nobody's going to likely convince the other. But as Reformed people, we don't believe 
that when the Bible says that Crispus believed in the Lord with all his household, and when Paul later in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, says that he baptized the whole family of Crispus, we do not believe that that means that all the adult members of his family believed along with Crispus and upon their professing it were baptized. That would be more consistent if the text said, and Crispus and all his family believed the gospel. By the way, the same language is used back in Acts 16 of the jailer and of Lydia, whose families were also baptized. But we believe that when it says that the, uh, Crispus believed with all his family and they were all baptized, we see in that language, my friends, a carryover from the Old Testament dispensation. That in the Old Testament times, when the family or when the head of the household was circumcised, all his infant boys were also circumcised as well. And we believe that that practice now carries over, unless, of course, unless we are told otherwise. And we have to be quick to say this, my friends, that if there is teaching in the New Testament that says, no longer carry over that practice, no longer practice family baptism, stop giving the sign of the covenant. Yes, that was in the Old Testament, but that's done now. Now, you just do it to those who could believe and make a credible profession of their faith. But there is no such teaching to the best of our knowledge, and so we carry on the practice. And this verse gives us a very uh, a good clue that that practice was Paul's practice. And that's what he did. And so, I, again, I wanted to park on that point for a while, my friends, to, to, to give us to understand that the household, the family, the covenantal practice of the Old Testament The New Testament gives us every reason to believe that that continues on. And that's the basis for our understanding, then, of giving baptism to infant children. I don't think that you can read that text and believe that it says only those who made a credible profession of faith received baptism. My friends, on to application number two. Application, the second application, encouragement. The Second application, my friends, is encouragement from us. Because I couldn't help, as I read this, of seeing Paul's loneliness in Corinth. He gets to Corinth. He had Timothy with him briefly in Athens, but he had to send him off again. And how the heart of Paul must have rejoiced when Timothy and Silas burst through that door and brought with them the well wishes of the other churches. How his heart must have rejoiced. We can know, my friends, that Paul must have been somewhat discouraged Because we read already in verse 9, this is actually the text that I took this morning for the sermon, where God says directly to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. That brings us back to the question that we started when we read the law this morning. Is God with you this morning, dear congregation? Paul began to feel that maybe God was not with him. He began to sense something of a separation between him and God. And now God gives him this beautiful vision. And my friends, are there happier words that anyone can hear in the life of a Christian? And that's the third application, encouragement from God. God gives encouragement specifically to Paul by this vision and says, Paul, I am with you. Keep speaking, Paul. And my friends, I want also to point out to you The reason that God gives for Paul to keep speaking. Let's not miss that this morning. Verse 9 says, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. There's the first reason. And that reason in and of itself is enough. 
But God continues, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. I find that very interesting, my friends, because here is God saying that I have many people. They're not yet believers, but those people are under the seal of my electing love. I have chosen them from eternity past, and I need to call them out of their darkness. Paul, you're the man that I've anointed to do that. And so, Paul, you need to go on speaking because there are people here whom I've known from a never-begun eternity. And you need to call them and bring them out of darkness. Just as we saw back in Lystra, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And my friends, Paul, uh, God encourages his servant Paul with the doctrine of election. Now, isn't that interesting that the very doctrine that is t- we, are, we are told is, is against the practice of evangelistic endeavor, right? That's, that's often the objection, that if God has his elect people and he's going to save them, then why do we have to do evangelism? Because after all, God will find a way to save them one way or the other. My friends, the, the very reverse is the case. God has many people in Corinth. And my friends, God has many people in Kalamazoo. God has many people in Kalamazoo. Oh, well, if he has many people in Kalamazoo, then I guess we're all set then. He'll find a way to bring the gospel to them. God will take care of it. After all, it's all sovereign grace. And God will save them. No, my friends. You see, that is exactly a God-dishonoring attitude. The doctrine of election teaches us to go out and to promiscuously preach the gospel to everyone, to declare God's divine call, And God's offer is salvation to all who will hear it and say, come, here is a sacrifice. Here is Jesus Christ. His blood is shed. It is sufficient for you. You can come and be saved. And the very reason, my friends, we do that, the very reason we should be encouraged is because God has many people in this city. And he calls us as Christian people to bring that call to them and to call them out of their darkness. Don't miss that this morning, my friends. That every evangelistic effort we put forth is undergirded by this truth that God has people in this city and God has people in other cities. And it's our privilege to bring the gospel to them. And God will in his own time, yes, and in his own place, call them. But we bring them that glad message. That is our encouragement to continue. Well, my friends, may God bless these words to us as we see Paul working in Corinth. And uh, may we be encouraged to carry on the work of the gospel, for God is with us. Let us be encouraged by these words. Let us pray. Lord, what a great encouragement it is to know that you are with those of your people who step forth in faith and boldly proclaim the gospel and boldly speak the word of truth. Lord, we confess that we often lack the courage. We think we, uh, we don't have the right words to say. But Lord, if we can know that you are with us, if we can know, Lord, what we've already professed this day, that our hand is in your hand, that we are held by love that faileth never, that as you told old Jacob in Genesis, that you were with him, that you would prosper his way, that you would bring him back to the land again, and all that you had promised to him, you would surely bring to pass. Lord, may we be encouraged by these words. Bless us and keep us, Lord, 
as we continue to enjoy a, a, a day of rest, a Lord's Day, a Sabbath, I pray, Lord, that you would bless it to us. Remember also our children, Lord. We've also heard of how they too can sing, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the Bible has told us so, Lord. You yourself have spoken to us that you will not have the children to be excluded from your covenant, that you would have them brought as well and gathered into your loving arms, that they also might receive the seal of your love, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit, sealed to them by your wonderful grace. O God, we pray that as our children contemplate this truth and as their minds come to grasp it, that they would respond, that they also would reach out in faith and take hold of the Savior and give their life to you. Lord, please bless us and keep us then as we go forth this day. We pray for a good service also this evening as we return, Lord, to hear and to hear about doubting Thomas. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that we might find your word as silver and gold, as honey from the honeycomb. And all this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in uh, the blue hymnal again to number 465. Number 465, am I a soldier of the cross? And verse 4, since I must fight if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. So we'll sing all four verses of number 465 in the blue hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.